Hello, my name is Julio Gabay. I am uh, Abacus Worldwide President and CEO, and I want to welcome you uh, to Vantage Worldwide UK Edition. Uh, this is brought to you by Abacus Worldwide, and Vantage examines the opportunities and potential challenges of doing business across the globe. Each month, experts from Abacus membership share insight into the business environment in their country, providing you with highlights of what is required for international expansion. So please join me in welcoming our panelists, uh, Mark Wildey, uh, tax partner at Baxter & Co., a uh, general accounting and tax practice based to the south of London, providing a complete range of accounting, auditing, and tax services to owner-managed businesses within the UK and internationally. Uh, we also have with us Adam Stranach, uh, a director shareholder at Harwood Hutton Limited, a multi-skilled firm of chartered accountants, auditors, tax and business advisors based west of and in central London. Uh, Adam leads Harwood Hutton's corporate finance services, and in addition, he acts as auditor to companies and legal practices. Uh, welcome also Clive Halperin, partner at GSC Solicitors LLP. Based in the city of London, GSC Solicitors LLP is a Legal 500 recommended award-winning commercial law firm advising businesses, individuals, entrepreneurs, and ultra-high net worth clients in the UK and internationally. And last, but definitely, definitely not least, our moderator today, is Edward Lee, uh, a corporate partner at House Percival, specializing in M&A. House Percival are leading full-service top 120 UK commercial law firm uh, whose clients range from individuals to global businesses and are a tier one advisor to the UK government. Thank you, uh, gentlemen, for being on the call, and I'm going to pass this on now to our moderator, Edward. Thank you, Julio. Uh, this session, as Julio mentioned, is about doing business in the UK. It will attempt to answer some of the questions that you and your clients will have when thinking about operating in the UK. Uh, the UK, for these purposes in this session, will not include Scotland because the law is different there. Um, as we said, we want the session to be interactive, so please use the chat function and I'll try and get to as many of the questions as I can. The session will take four different aspects of doing business in the UK. The first being setting up a business in the UK followed by selling goods or services directly into the UK. Uh, and then we'll talk about sending employees to the UK. And lastly, we'll talk about buying a business in the UK. So if we start with the first of those, which is setting up a business in the UK. Um, Clive, what types of structure can be used to carry on business in the UK? Um, do you, for example, need resident directors and shareholders? And how easy is it to do the practical things that companies need to do, um, like setting up a bank account or registering a trademark? Hi, Edward. Yeah, thanks for that. So really, England's an easy place and the UK is an easy place to set up a business. There's very, very few formalities, uh, lots of different ways of uh, setting up a structure in the UK to start a business. Most people tend to use a limited liability structure, which are very common in other jurisdictions as well. So things like companies, limited liability companies or limited liability partnerships. Extremely easy to set these up. There's no UK residency requirement for the directors or the shareholders. You don't have to have a minimum percentage of shares owned by English residents or English or British citizens. And um, it can be done online very simply, uh, and it's very inexpensive with very few formalities. Um, that's one of the reasons why lots of people do like to do business in the 
um, UK, there are very, very few hurdles to setting up a, a registered business structure. Some of the formalities like opening a bank account, um, it's an interesting point because in theory, it should be very simple to open up a bank account online, wherever you're from. But in practice, because of the very, very strict uh, anti-money laundering provisions and compliance regulations that banks in the UK have, uh, there can be difficulties with some banks if you don't have a UK resident director and everybody's overseas. Uh, we've had clients with some banks had a lot of difficulty in opening bank accounts. Um, but often businesses which are starting up will have existing banking relationships in their own countries and can leverage that to open bank accounts in the UK, at least to start with, if they don't have anybody here who is resident, say, to assist them. And things like trademarks, Britain's got a very, very um, long-established trademark uh, registration procedure. It's party to all of the international treaties. Uh, and again, this can all be done online relatively extensively. And um, it's a pretty easy place to do business if you want to start up here. Thanks, Clyde. That all sounds pretty straightforward. Mark, um, what are the different tax treatments for the structures that Clive has outlined? And in what circumstances might it be better to have uh, a temporary operation like a branch office rather than a more permanent one like a subsidiary? And, you know, would the UK be a good location for a group holding company? Um, yes, sir. thanks, Edward. Yeah, just following on from what Clive, um, Clive was saying, generally the choice um, in the UK or the preference for, for most people setting up in the UK is to set up a limited liability company. You can use a limited liability partnership. Um, they are generally tend to be more for more specialist uses and have slightly different tax treatment. But so if I just talk about uh, setting up a UK company, then generally you will be paying 19% corporation tax on your profits. The alternative, as Edward mentioned, is to have a, a branch to register in the UK, a branch or a place of business of an overseas company. Um, now, um, and there are a number of branches in the UK, uh, sorry, in, in the UK of overseas companies, and we'll we deal with quite a few of them. Some of them have been around for a very long time. Now, in general purposes, it, in, in principle, you pay the same tax, whether you operate through a branch or whether you operate through a company, you pay 19% on, on your profits. And in principle, those profits will be the same, whether it's a branch operation or, or a limited company. The preference normally is to use a company rather than a branch. It's slightly easier to incorporate a company than to register a branch. Um, it's also normally slightly easier to open a, a bank account in the UK for a company than it is for, for a branch. From a tax perspective, uh, the advantage of having a company is that, is that it's easier to control the profits which are subject to UK tax. If you have a branch of an overseas company, then you're looking at what we call an attribution. You're looking at the profits of the whole overseas company and you're looking to what extent those are attributable to the UK operation. And that can be a little bit complex sometimes. Um, there, are there are sometimes circumstances when a branch has a definite uh, tax advantage over a company. And that's principally when there's a home country advantage to having a, a branch operation in the UK. And typically we see that where you've got losses initially in the UK and you've got home country jurisdiction, like for example, Australia or, or, or maybe India, where you can actually take relief for those losses in, in the home country that you're making in, in the UK. Um, Edward then went on just to ask about whether the UK made a good location as a holding company. And 
it's certainly true that the UK has a number of tax advantages. Um, there's no tax on dividends which are received from overseas companies where the UK is a holding company or from other UK companies. Uh, generally, there's some, some uh, exceptions to that. Uh, there's no uh, capital gains tax when a disposal is made by the UK, a UK holding company of its subsidiary, providing that subsidiary was a, a trading company and, and certain minimum conditions are met. And in addition, the UK has a very wide and extensive uh, double tax treaty network, which means that a UK holding company can receive interest, can receive royalties from its subsidiaries, both in, um, or overseas, and in a lot of cases, the double tax treaty will reduce or eliminate the withholding tax. So that's um, just a very broad outline of those advantages, uh, Edward. Thanks, Mark. Adam, given that we take a view that we've got some sort of operation in the UK, how easy is it to move profits out of the UK elsewhere, uh, e.g. how does withholding taxes affect that? And for the various structures that we've talked about, what are the statutory accounting requirements? Well, thanks, Edward. I think um, Mark's already touched on some of the withholding tax aspects. So uh, there is no requirement to deduct withholding tax from dividends or any distributions. We have no exchange controls in the UK. Um, so those, those uh, payments can be made gross regardless of um, uh, 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 any withholding tax. There is none on them. There may be withholding tax, um, I think, as, as Mark has alluded to, on payments of interest or royalties. Normally, the default position is 20%. There are plenty, though, of agreements around the world that reduce that or modify that. So it's pretty easy, actually, to move money uh, out of um, uh, corporates from the UK. Um, in terms of the accounting requirements in the UK, I'm going to start with the Companies Act, uh, because most of the companies that we deal with will derive their um, uh, requirements from that. The Companies Act required directors to um, prepare accounts that show a true and fair view. What does that mean? It means uh, that you follow financial reporting standards. So at the very highest uh, end of things, if you're talking about quoted businesses in the UK, they're going to follow international financial reporting standards issued by the uh, International Accounting uh, Standards Board. The UK setters um, really just dial that down a bit with our financial reporting standards. They're all, they're all still very much following that international financial reporting standards regime. So um, uh, there's the Financial Reporting Standard 102, which is a very common one that most companies would follow. There is a further level down, FRS 1021A, which is for small companies and small groups, and those are basically businesses which qualify because their turnover is less than 10.2 million, their total gross assets are less than 5.1 million, or they've got less than 50 employees. It's basically two out of three. Um, and right at the bottom end, there's FRS 105 for micro entities. Um, they're businesses basically with um, uh, £632,000 worth of turnover or less, £316,000 of total gross assets or less than 10 employees. And the gradation between these uh, different standards really comes down to uh, presentation requirements and disclosure requirements. So just to give an example, at the very bottom and micro entities, those very small companies, they can, their publicly available accounts are literally, uh, in most cases, just one page of balance sheet, and that's it. Very broad brush headings. As you go through FRS 1021A and FRS 102, the requirements change. Um, audit, again, the limits are very similar to the small companies' limits I mentioned. Turnover of 10.2 um, million or total assets of 5.1 million or uh, less than 50 employees. 
So for the majority of companies in the UK, um, they're regarded as small or micro. Thanks, Adam. I think that covers off actually having a business in the UK. But what if we don't decide to do that? What if we decide to sell goods and services directly into the UK market? Clive, what's the differences in the UK between selling from a distance directly in or selling through an agent or a distributor? Yeah, yeah thanks, Edward. The, um, I mean, it is, of course, possible, and many companies do uh, sell um, directly from overseas into the UK. That's not uncommon at all. They have to deal with all the usual uh, requirements of um, import duties and VAT, which I think uh, some of the others will talk about from a tax perspective. Uh, we do find that once, particularly with some larger goods, people often in the UK do prefer to have contracts with an English company or a British company because they know where to find them. Um, and so as businesses become to uh, start to develop, they more often than not either want to set up their own company or maybe appoint a UK agent or distributor. Um, distributors are organizations which will buy the goods from the overseas company and then resell them in the UK. Sometimes that's partly a group structure. So they will have a UK subsidiary which acts as the distributor, but other times they appoint third parties who've got knowledge of the UK market and um, buy the goods maybe on an exclusive basis and sell them in the UK, as happens in many, many territories. Uh, occasionally, or more than occasionally, they appoint agents. So that might be a UK company or an individual to represent um, the foreign organization. In that case, the UK agent doesn't purchase the goods themselves and resells them, but just negotiates and maybe handles customer inquiries on behalf of the overseas company. Uh, one thing to look out for in the UK is, like in many European jurisdictions, agents have got statutory protections, which means that on their termination of their agency, they might be entitled to sometimes quite a lot of compensation. And that applies whether it's in the contract or not. We've had some clients in America who have appointed UK agents on the basis of their American agency agreements and then have been surprised when they terminated them after a few years to find that they've had to pay sometimes quite substantial compensation to those agents as a result of termination of the agency. So it is important if you are going to point an, an agent particularly to make sure that you check the local advice and see what uh, of any particular rules there may be which might affect the way that people appoint agents in their own countries. I think Edward, that probably sums it up um, from a legal perspective. Uh, thanks Clive. Mark, given the sorts of things that Clive's mentioned, what taxes will be relevant in those situations? For example, um, will you need to register for or charge VAT? Uh, uh, thanks, Edward. Yes, normally VAT is, is a, a prime consideration for any company or any business that's just selling into the UK, whether it's goods or services. And you know, there are a lot of complex rules around VAT, but just to sort of try and break it down and look at it in very broad outline, uh, we can sort of distinguish between goods and services. We can distinguish it between whether you're selling as an overseas business, you're selling either to other UK registered businesses, so businesses registered in the UK for VAT, VAT or whether you're selling more generally to the general public, to the, the end consumer. Um, now, in the simple case, when you're, when you're selling goods, or in most cases when you're selling services and you're selling to a registered UK business, the one registered for, for VAT, then 
there isn't very much you need to do as regards VAT because the business that you're selling to is required to operate what we call a reverse charge mechanism and will self-assess itself for the VAT. So the obligation is, is shifted from you as the seller to, to your purchaser in the UK as long as they are a UK registered business for VAT. And that's something you should always check when you're selling to, to a UK business that they are registered in the UK, they've got a VAT number. Um, if you're not selling, uh, if you're selling to the general public, then things can be a little bit more complicated. And again, the distinction there is whether you're selling from another EU country, so your business in another EU state, or whether you're selling from outside of the EU. If you're selling from outside of the EU and you're selling goods to a UK, uh, to the UK general public, then you would need to register from your first sale and you would need to account for UK VAT and you, you would need to, to obviously to, to comply with the UK VAT re, uh, regulations and make returns. If you're selling from another EU country, then uh, you only need to do that if you, uh, part, if you go over what's called the, the threshold. You come under what are known as the distant selling rules in, in the EU. And the threshold for UK purposes is, is currently £70,000 in a calendar year. So if you're selling goods to a value of more than £70,000 in, in, in a calendar year, then you would need to register for UK VAT and account for UK VAT. And we do deal with a number of uh, overseas sellers, uh, you know, where we who have to comply with those regulations, so where we do the VAT compliance for them. And that's quite common if you're an overseas seller, you might engage a firm of accountants sometimes lawyers to act as your VAT agent for you. That covers goods when you're selling them to the general public. Services can be a little bit more complex because there's lots of different types of services, but the ones we most commonly see when, uh, when we're looking at sort of uh, uh, selling to the general public from overseas are, are what we call e-services. So that's downloads, perhaps a software, that's uh, uh, publications and things like that. And in those cases, there is, um, again, generally a requirement to register for UK VAT. Now there is a, 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 a simplification with it in the EU, EU called the mini one-stop shop, uh, whereby you can register in one EU country and, and make returns to one EU country to cover your sales in, in all EU countries. Um, uh, there's, there's two schemes, there's one for sellers from outside the EU and one for sellers uh, within the EU. And I think um, Adam in a second is going to come on to talk a little bit about what's going to happen after Brexit because obviously that will change the position uh, for those sellers in the UK. Thanks Edward. Um, thanks Mark and uh, rightly trailed. Um, Adam, can you give us some practical examples of how Brexit might impact on this and generally on business in the UK? Yeah, sure, Edward. I mean, um, uh, VAT is the big topic. We'll talk about that in a minute. I, I think if you're talking to business people in the UK at the moment who um, are used to selling their services or goods relatively freely around Europe, that's the big topic. On a more general canvas, I mean, COVID-19 in the UK, it swept the whole world. It's sort of pushed Brexit off the agenda to a degree. It is back on the agenda now but we are several months down the line of a very short window politically to get this all sorted. So quite frankly, there's a myriad of rules, business rules that are not sorted. Um, so whilst the expectation, for example, is that it will be business as usual and most of the rules have been adopted uh, uh, en masse, um, there will be a lot of frantic negotiation going on between particular different trade bodies 
um, as the year goes on. But VAT is the big general hot topic. Um, certainly, you know, there's going to be no abolition of VAT. It raises in the UK 120 billion pounds worth of sterling every year, something of that order. It's a big tax. Um, it's possible it could be flexed so that it's at a different rate, but that will probably mean, especially with COVID-19, tax rates will change dramatically on direct taxation. And outside the UK, quite frankly, sales taxes are a popular form of tax. So I don't see the UK government falling out of line with any of that. EU VAT rules uh, are not going to change. That's another thing. They'll keep their rules. So if a particular transaction is deemed to arise in a given location under EU rules, then uh, those rules will, will be in play. They'll remain in play. Um, so a UK business with a VAT liability elsewhere in Europe will still need to take steps to remain compliant with local VAT rules. That's what we expect. Um, it then breaks down between goods and services, and the most significant changes are with goods. Um, we certainly expect some significant procedural changes with goods being shipped uh, to the, U the EU, for example. So if a UK business was to sell goods to an EU country, um, at the moment there are no border controls, no import or export declarations, etc. Well, that's all likely to change. If you go to the worst case scenario, but in mind, but in mind we don't know precisely how the rules are going to play out um, post-Brexit. If there's um, uh, a very poor deal uh, around VAT, you might find yourself having to do export declarations, although hopefully they'll be simplified. When the goods reach the EU, there'll be import declarations. There's likely to be import VAT you've got to, you've got to pay, so there's going to be a cash flow impact, um, and perhaps other customers' duties as well. The UK supplier may well have to register um, for VAT in the country concerned in Europe. There may be some relaxations of things like um, EC sales list reporting and interest stat declarations, but um, it really is quite a movable feat at the moment as to whether there's going to be an additional tax cost um, that the EU imposes on us. It will all come down, I think, as the negotiations unfold during the course of the rest of 2020. There will almost certainly be a commercial impact. Um, customers may not want to process imports if the same goods can be sourced elsewhere in the UK. Uh, we've one of the basic things we've been advising clients is if if the market's going to be split in two, UK and the rest of Europe, you might put a big warehouse if you're shifting goods in Europe and a smaller warehouse in the UK, for example. Um, and there will be a cost cash flow impact if you do start moving across from the UK to other parts of Europe. There'll be uh, the import VAT which you've got to pay and then reclaim uh, in some instances. So um, there's quite a lot of things to consider really. Uh, and you're going to have increased compliance costs. On the services side, just touching on that briefly, less disruption we anticipate. Uh, in the vast majority of cases, the VA treatments are likely to remain the same as they are now, particularly for business-to-business -business sales. Um, they're not likely to tr trigger a VAT registration obligation, which wouldn't otherwise have arisen already under the current rules. Uh, Business-to-consumer supplies, um, again, broadly comparable, we expect there may be some procedural changes. Um, Mark mentioned the mini one-stop shop, the MOS. Well, that's unlikely to be available, um, and so affected businesses will either have to register for VAT in every EU country in which they supply, or, or certainly um, enter into a non-union uh, mini one-stop shop scheme in another member state. So big changes, basically, which are being driven out of VAT, out of the sales, which the sales uh, trade of terms that, that happen between um, suppliers in different countries. 
there are um, the greatest threat really to service providers is they might be denied the right to sell services in the EU. There's a bit of a battle going on, um, particularly around, for example, financial services. London's had a preeminent position. Um, I think other capitals in Europe want to try and grab some of that. So there's all that sort of thing going on as well, uh, Edward. It's a, it's a very difficult picture, but certainly VAT is a big talking point. Uh, thanks for that, Adam. Uh, it's one of those questions. I'd be interested in the views of some of the people on the call who are in continental Europe as to whether Brexit is raising its head in their countries um, above what's going on in terms of the news uh, and COVID-19. So it'd be quite nice to hear about that. So if we take a, a move forward now and say we're not going to have a direct selling scenario, perhaps we're not going to have a permanent presence in the UK but we do want to send some employees to do various things um, you know scout out opportunities etc so let's look at moving people cross-border um, Clive what are the visa issues around sending employees to the UK uh, and how easy is it to employ people in the UK as a foreign business okay so <clears throat> like uh, some of the tax issues and VAT uh, immigration law in um, the UK is a hot topic particularly because of Brexit, uh, it's currently being changed. So there will be different laws at the end of um, December, uh, going forward from next year after the transition period has ended. Um, and the idea overall is to try and make it a slightly more even playing field between Europe and other countries in the world, whereas at the moment, historically, as part of the EU, uh, members, um, residents and citizens of the European Union can, can freely come and work in uh, the UK without any formality whatsoever. If you're coming um, from outside the EU at the moment, there's a number of ways to uh, employ people here. You might just be coming to visit um, for a trade show once travel's allowed after COVID-19 and or for some meeting, preliminary meetings. And those generally very straightforward to come in here for that. Uh, if you're if the country's part of the one of the visa waiver countries, uh, you can just come in without any formality, but often even if it's something more than that, just a letter of invitation from someone that you're meeting would be sufficient. Um, moving up to the next level, if you actually want to set up in business here, which many uh, companies do, uh, there's what's known as the representative of an overseas business visa. I have to apply for it, of course, and that's for the first employee that's coming to the UK to set up the business over here. And, that once you've got that visa, you can come and live here for five years uh, and set up the business, uh, which is what how many foreign companies often start, start off by sending one person over here. Once a company's established, they often want to move employees, maybe if they're from a larger organization between the different uh, between the different companies in different countries. So they might want to move somebody from uh, South America, maybe to, uh, from the South American office to the UK. And there are visas that you can get for doing that as well. At the moment, it has to be somebody who's got a graduate level experience. And they've got to be an existing employee in um, their, the other country that they're working for. But it does have the advantage that you don't have to apply, uh, I mean, advertise the job for a UK uh, citizen, first of all, or UK resident, first of all. And then there are other what's known as the tier two visa for hiring skilled migrants from overseas and there you have to show there's a need to employ that person and you can't find that person in the UK. So there's a requirement to advertise and to see whether there's someone in the UK with sufficient skills. Um, going forward, uh, this is all changing. Um, 
there's going to uh, make it easier, as I said, to recruit uh, and employ people and bring people into the country from countries outside of the EU. But everybody who wants to do that in the UK is going to need to have a formal license in order to do that. Um, but it will become easier. They're going to start scoring people in a different way. You won't necessarily have to have had a graduate level job in order to be allowed a visa. And so in some ways it may become easier to actually bring people into the UK, especially if they're from outside the EU. Um, it can be quite expensive. So some of the fees are 5,000 pounds a person. So maybe bringing in a family of four of one of your employees from your uh, Australian office and moving them to the UK office, even just fees, never mind any other relocation expenses, could be well in excess of £20,000. So uh, these things are, are not, not something to be done lightly. In terms of actually employing people in the UK, it doesn't matter whether you're an English company or an overseas company, there's lots of um, employment law rights which apply um, these are very common in lots of other countries around the world, but it is important because there can be substantial uh, liabilities if you don't follow the uh, rules and regulations. If you try to dismiss someone in the wrong way, you can incur a lot of liability. And of course, we have uh, many countries, all of the employment protection provisions from discrimination for race, disability, and so on. I think uh, that probably covers it, Edward. But I know there are some complex details and we will be looking to circulate some more information about this after the, um, uh, after the seminar. Thanks for that, Clive. Mark, given what's just been discussed, what issues have you seen relating to taxes, e.g. payroll issues, when people do bring people from abroad into the UK? Um, yes, uh, thank you, Edward. Uh, I think the starting point, obviously, when somebody comes into the UK is to, is to look at their, their residence, their tax residence in the UK. Now, in general, for the sort of people we're talking about, they're going to be coming to the UK for a period of time, uh, often for at least, uh, at least a year. So it's likely in most cases they will become UK tax resident from the day they arrive and will remain UK tax residents until they, until they ultimately leave. Now, as a UK tax resident, they're taxable on their worldwide income. So that applies to both employment income, but all other income as well. Now, there are some exceptions, um, uh, and particularly there is uh, some reliefs available. There's one particular relief which we, uh, we, see, we see, you know, occasionally, which is called overseas work-based relief, where somebody is coming to the UK, but they're still under contract to a foreign employer, and they're still doing some work overseas. So provided that certain conditions are met, then some of their, some of their earnings can be outside the UK tax net. But you do need to take a lot of care, and there are a lot of conditions around those uh, various types of relief, and they do all need to be claimed. They're not, none of them are automatic. Now, when you have somebody in the UK, and they are employed, they have employment income, even though their employer is a foreign employer, so not based in the UK, there is still an obligation uh, to operate our payroll system, which is called Pay As You Earn, uh, P-A-Y-E. Uh, that's a system for collecting income tax and also social security, which we call national insurance in the UK. Uh, now that applies even if you have a foreign employer who does not have any kind of uh, physical presence or place of business in the UK. And that can obviously lead to some difficulty in some cases, there may be an associated or a group company which can operate that uh, payroll system. 
but in, in cases where that's not the case, then it falls upon the employee to actually account for that pay-as-you-earn uh, income tax and national insurance on his own account. And that can be done through a couple of mechanisms, either what we call a direct payment system, whereby the employee makes a monthly uh, report to the revenue of his earnings and pays over the tax on a, on a quarterly, tax and national insurance on a quarterly basis, or it can be done through our self-assessment system. Um, now, we actually as a firm operate a number of what we call specialist payrolls, where we deal with uh, these types of individuals and we operate the payroll for their employer. So, so we will operate the payroll, do all the reporting uh, to the revenue and calculate the appropriate taxes and national insurance. Now, in terms of national insurance, um, uh, our national insurance system has two components. It has an employer's component and an employee component. For a business, for an employer who does not have any kind of establishment or, or presence in the UK, there's no employer's component, so that doesn't need to be paid. But the employee does still need to make a, a, a payment unless they are covered, either because they're a EU citizen who's been sent to the UK for a temporary period and they remain covered under their home system, in which case they need to get a certificate to evidence that, what we call an A1 certificate, or they come under one of the social security agreements that the UK has with a number of other countries. And the most significant one we see is the one with the US, which generally allows US individuals to come to the UK for periods of, of up to five years and remain covered in the US social security system, and in which case they don't need to pay UK national insurance. Um, so I think that just probably just in very brief terms uh, covers it, Edward. Thank you, Mark. <clears throat> Adam, we've heard a lot about what uh, expenses might be incurred by people operating here or setting up businesses here, taxes, visa charges, uh, also simple things like renting property, etc. Um, from a funding perspective, what helps available in terms of inward investment uh, for those thinking of coming to the UK? Um, that's quite a, I mean, the funding marketplace, funding um, landscape in the UK is very mature, very well developed. There's lots of funding available. So, um, and it's pretty much sector agnostic. There are specialist funds that look at different sectors, of course, but you can certainly find a fund or a group of funds that want to fund your business model. So the traditional debt and equity markets uh, are there, of course. We have a strong banking sector well recovered after the financial crisis of 12 years ago or so. Um, and uh, they look for security and serviceability uh, of the debts these days. Um, uh, just at the moment, of course, we've got quite a lot of government schemes out there as well, which are helping to uh, prop up uh, certain companies. But of course, they've got, to, they've got to pay that back in due course. So the debt scene is, is strong. Um, and very well developed and very, very mature. Equally, equity side is well developed, very mature. We have a very good range of private equity houses operating uh, in the UK, largely focused around um, uh, London and the Southeast, has to be said. Most of the deals in this country are still done in London and the Southeast. Um, but, um, you know, we have um, regional centres as well Edinburgh, uh, Manchester. Um, and they're all pretty buoyant and pretty strong. If you've got a business coming over here and you feel that you want to try and attract some equity investment from a mid-market P house, there's lots of strength in the UK for that. On top of that, uh, there's quite a lot of uh, government support as well. The government um, 
really put a patchwork in place, certainly across England. There are 38 what are known as uh, local enterprise partnerships, which are really public-private partnerships between business people and local councillors on the ground, um, and central government uh, making use of European funds, European uh, Regional Development Fund and European Social Fund. Um, they have distributed the monies that come uh, to the UK or otherwise topped up by the UK Treasury to different regions of the country. It does mean that depending on where you land, you could have 38 slightly different ways of getting money and 38 slightly different um, programs in place depending on what the particular focus is for that area. But if you look at the, the big areas, um, we've got a big area called um, the Northern Powerhouse centered really around Manchester. So if you're landing there, there's a lot of investment going in up there. Um, there's the Midlands Engine, as it's called, around Birmingham. Um, there's London, of course. London is always a hot spot, <clears throat> London and the southeast. Uh, and then there is actually, uh, between um, Oxford University, Cambridge University, Oxford and Cambridge, there's an arc now, which is recognized as an economic area and is being pumped prime by government. So um, there's lots of different programs through um, growth boards and growth hubs in each of these 38 areas, forward and inward investment. A lot of it is match funding, so there'll be a slug of public money matched by private endeavor or private money. But yeah, the, the, the landscape's good. Uh, thank you. I'd echo that. Being based in Milton Keynes, uh, right between Oxford and Cambridge, there's an awful lot of interest and investment going into yeah, this area. Yeah. And in terms of private equity, almost daily I'm getting feed from private equity houses looking for opportunities. So it's clearly a lot of activity still going on despite the current circumstances. If we move now on to the last part of this session, which is uh, buying a business in the UK, and this is where you know you may have exhausted the other options, and you've decided that you don't want to come in cold. You want to find thing that something that's already existing here. And I'll stay with you, Adam, if I may. Um, what do you think the short to medium term economic outlook is for the UK, and do you think there are some bargains to be had here? Yeah, thanks, Edward. Um, for sure. I mean in common with almost every other part of the world, um, certainly the OECD major economies, the UK uh, you hit a wall with COVID-19. Um, we are still in a, in a lockdown, quite a strong lockdown in the UK. Um, it's gradually being eased. If you look at the big numbers, um, uh, March on February this year was almost 6% down in terms of GDP. I think it was the biggest monthly change on record in the UK. If you look at our Bank of England, our central bank, it's forecasting that in Q2, um, economic activity just in Q2 is going to fall by 25%. There's lots of talk about V-shaped recoveries, W-shaped recoveries, Z recoveries, all sorts of different shapes you can talk about. The fact remains that um, there is confidence that a recovery is coming and will come. It may take quite, it might be, I think, a very sharp V. It will be perhaps a long-tailed V to get back to where we are, maybe well beyond this year. Um, but there is recovery in, in the public markets and the quota markets that we can already see. Um, corporate finance activity, quite frankly, drops off a cliff uh, in March. Um, we were doing some deals which did complete in March. We were doing some financial due diligence for some businesses in the property sector, which completed successfully in March. There's been a lot of deals where um, they have been deferred or they have been repriced or they have been pulled altogether for another better day, maybe in a year or so's time. And that's uh, in, the, in the kind of SME sector that I'm talking about. Um, having said that, you asked a question about are there bargains? Um, yeah, I think there are certainly bargains to be had. 
Um, and there are certainly some predatory activity going on out there. I certainly know one group in the facilities management sector that is um, not quite at the point I didn't think of, of making phone calls out there to, to um, competitors that they see are struggling, but that can be quite a fragmented market depending on what kind of infrastructure and facilities you're looking after. There's lots of infrastructure yourself you might have to have in place to, for, to, to service that, lots of people. And if you're working on tight margins, uh, even if you've got a contract, that contract may be in suspension at the moment. Some of those smaller operators are going to struggle. They're, they're going to struggle to come back. But they do do vital, almost like a social service. So there are slightly bigger players who are cozying up to them, trying to talk to them, find out if they can support them, ultimately to see if there's a deal there to be done at, at a good rate. Um, I know the funds market is quite fragmented in, in the UK. So there's lots of smaller operators, uh, financial advisory operators, had a deal on the go in March that, that, that fell over precisely because they were repricing the assets under management every day. So again, some of those guys are keen to move on um, uh, and there's probably some bargains to be had there um, as the year goes on. Certainly leisure and, and, um, uh, and having fun basically, you know, going out having fun, that sector's in real trouble. I had a client who's um, came to me a few weeks ago and asked me if there are any funds available that might actually support them. They're already thinking about some of the UK government schemes that are available. And the truth is because lockdown, the path of lockdown is still not very clear, certainly for some of these businesses in leisure and hospitality, it's not clear. And some of those models um, are, you know, working on very tight margins. Uh, and, uh, you know, there was an entrepreneur on our news the other night who said, look, people don't go out to dinner to eat. They go out to dinner to, to, to socialize, to enjoy. And all that aspect of the moment is very much in lockdown. So if your business model is about that, it's going to have to be significantly adapted going forward. You may not survive, but equally there may be bigger players that think, well, we can pick up some of that, that going forward. So it's a tough picture. I know this isn't about valuations. We just touch on valuations for a minute. There's, there's probably a triple impact that people are talking about. Um, if you're looking at EBITDA valuations, first of all, you've got EBITDA may well have collapsed or certainly will be reprogrammed, flattened. So that will lower potentially pricing. Um, you can argue about whether this is a double, in, double counting impact, but people are saying obviously the multiples might be, well have been impacted. So maybe you're working on six before in, that, in your particular industry, maybe it's four now. And on top of that, if you are taking out extra debt, some of these government schemes, of course, you'll be deducting the debt as a triple impact, a third aspect of the impact, um, you know, when you come to, to look at the equity values. So there's a lot of dynamics going on that make the corporate finance scene quite uh, interesting at the moment. But there are deals out there and there are, there are opportunities and um, bargains to be had, Edward. So, yeah. Okay, thank you for that. Clive, what activity are you seeing in the M&A market and how do you think uh, Brexit might affect this? Yeah, I think if you'd have asked me this at the beginning of the year, I'd have thought Brexit's going to have a huge impact on this. But of course, that was before COVID-19, which has had a much bigger impact, I think, on, um, on all of this. I think we're, what we've seen pretty much like Adam was saying was that there were transactions which were carrying on from before the lockdown, which took place around mid-March. Most of those have continued, um, particularly in areas which are not, you know, subject to the big effects of lockdown like hospitality, travel, um, hotels and restaurants type businesses, which really have come to a complete halt. One of the big issues um, we've seen is valuation as well. People can't really work out what value to place on something. There's a lot of 
downward pressure on valuations and people are just waiting, I think, waiting to see now what's going to happen. Some areas like infrastructure and where there's a long term investment, I think we've seen one transaction that sector that's carried on. Uh, pricing hasn't really been affected. And um, go moving forward to assuming we come out of lockdown and get to Brexit, I mean, the big impact, I think, has been the weakness of sterling. That's made it um, that's made it cheaper for foreign companies to invest. We've had uh, quite a few transactions with overseas buyers of English companies because it's effectively the discount to what the sterling rate was some time ago. And um, <clears throat> so that de-risks it for them. And I think we're going to see more of that. There's lots of uh, overseas high net worth family office type uh, businesses and private equity who have got cash to spend. And I think they'll be looking to buy assets in the UK. We're seeing interest in uh, prime property, for example. So, um, you know, people still see, I think the UK is a safe place to invest. It's got a very mature and quite large, you know, there's 65 to 70 million people here in internal market. And I think it's gonna remain attractive um, post-Brexit, um, once people are a bit clearer about what the um, result of the lockdown is going to be. And as Adam says, some of these businesses models may well change, but it may be that they don't change as much as people are anticipating at the moment. Uh, it's more of a medical issue, I think, than a legal or accountancy <laughs> one. But, uh, Thanks. Gives, uh, some predictions uh, may come back at the end of the year, of course, and revisit all of these. Thanks for that, Clive. From my own perspective, uh, a big, portion of my work is international M&A and we're certainly seeing in the Far East, um, Hong Kong, China, Singapore, opportunities being presented to that marketplace on the basis that currencies in your favour and UK prices um, will be lower. So, so we know there's some activity that's going to come from there uh, and we've also heard that countries coming out quicker than others like Germany are also looking uh, to invest in the UK. So I think there's an upside to this but I think it is about volume. We won't see volume for a while. Um, Mark, um, what are the tax issues for an overseas buyer if they buy a business in the UK? Um, yes, thanks Edward. So and the, the tax issues really are essentially the same sort of uh, post-Covid as they were before. And any sort of person, any business buying into the UK will want to consider how they structure the UK acquisition. And this will think, you know, obviously look at how the UK operation will fit into the existing group structure and where it will fit into that structure and how the acquisition is going to be funded. Um, and this in terms, in terms sort of looks at sort of the, the, the funded in terms of the mix of equity and debt and how they're going to get relief for those funding costs, where the debt funding costs. Um, typically a sort of a very common and simple structure which is used to make an acquisition of a UK company is to make that acquisition through either an existing UK company or to set up a new, incorporate a new UK company to make that acquisition. And then that new UK company or that, that acquiring UK company will be funded. And you're looking then at the, at the mix between equity funding and, and debt funding for that company. In part, that's going to depend upon the, the, the home country uh, tax attributes of the, of the particular group which is making the acquisition. And it will also depend upon looking at you know, the size of that acquisition and looking at the UK rules. We've got UK rules around transfer pricing and fin capitalisation, which impact upon the amount of, sort of that debt to equity ratio you can have. And also we have uh, the larger acquisitions, we 
uh, we had a, a restriction on, on, on interest, corporate interest uh, relief. So those are all factors which need to be considered in looking at how you structure that uh, acquisition. You're also looking to make sure you get relief for the, for the acquisition costs. Uh, that's something that can be quite easily overlooked. The acquisition costs can be quite significant in terms of legal costs, due, due diligence costs, and, you, and any buyer's gonna want to make sure they get relief for those costs. Uh, lastly, and particularly when you're looking at sort of private equity type acquisitions, you're gonna to want to think about how you incentivize the existing management, particularly the key manager management, the people that you want to retain within the business who are gonna take the business forward. And often that will involve some kind of equity incentive so that those individuals are tied in with the success of the business and have the same common objectives as the, as the overseas uh, uh, buyer or owner. Um, and there are, some, there are some structures in the UK which are very tax efficient. Again, whether you can take uh, advantage of these depends upon the size of the acquisition, size of what you're dealing with, and also the sector in which you're involved with. But those are all things that you know, uh, any overseas buyer will be, will be looking at. Thanks, everybody. Thank, thank you, Mark. Uh, before I hand back to Julio to close this session, um, I would add that obviously if any questions come to mind after the session ends, uh, just please send those questions to Julio and uh, we'll make sure we get back to you with, with answers. So I'm going to hand back to Julio now. Thank you, Edward. Uh, again, I want to thank uh, all the uh, people that were on the call. Thank you for your questions in advance and, and during the session as well. Uh, and a special thank you to Edward uh, Lee for moderating the call, uh, to Mark Wiley, uh, to Adam Stronach and uh, Clive Halpern also for being part of the panel. Uh, if you do have any follow-up questions, please feel free to send it to me uh, or Jessica. We'll be able to filter it throughout and you will get a copy of this recording to be able to share uh, with your clients and with individuals within the firm. Again, thank you for taking part at, uh, of uh, this session, Vantage Worldwide UK Edition, and stay tuned uh, for another session coming next month. I believe we'll be doing Brazil. So thank you very much and have a great rest of your day.